welcome to Faith Church. Uh, my name is Pastor Dave. I'm in my Bible in Matthew 12, starting in verse 22. If you want to flip over there with me, you're, you're very welcome to do that, or you can find it in your phone. Uh, a few caveats before we dive into today's sermon. Uh, we're looking at Matthew, and we've been looking at Matthew since uh, last August, walking through. And so today, I, I, I didn't come to this passage because I had a bone to pick with any of you. It's next. And so um, that's, that's why we're here today. And the other thing that I just want to mention is that Jesus, in this passage, there's no indication that he was shouting. So if you experience him shouting, there's no reason from the text to assume he was. In Matthew 23, we, we might assume that he raised his voice quite a bit when he's saying, woe to these Pharisees. But he was so patient with them for a long time. So I hope you'll experience his words of caution and warning, even words, words warning of judgment. I hope you'll hear them calmly because he's reasoning with you, reasoning with your heart today. Jesus is calling out these Pharisees, these conservative religious leaders in his day, because they are opposing him. Not only him, but they're opposing God. They're opposing what God is doing in the world because it threatens them. It threatens their power. It threatens their position. And Jesus he matters today to us because he, <laughs> he is the dividing line. He's calling us to decide, are we with him or are we not with him? And if we're with him, he offers us such blessing. But there's a problem with this because in the world, people will not want us to align ourselves with him. Because he threatens their power and position. Uh, it, th things like this happen all the time in our world. There was a woman named Ida Tarbell. She was a, a journalist in the beginning of the 20th century, end of the 19th. Uh, in, your, in your American history class in high school, you might have learned about her. That's where I first learned about her. Uh, she's a muckraker. So she was digging up the muck about some of the corporate greed and the, the things that were going on in that day. And she wrote a book called The History of the Standard Oil Company, which was uh, owned and led by John D. Rockefeller. And in her his history, she exposes some of the, the greedy business practices that Standard Oil did to take over the industry, to secure the wealth and privilege of the owners of this business, while also cutting the wages of the people that were working for them. There were all sorts of business practices that wouldn't be acceptable today because of regulations that have come since. And Ida Tarbell was one of the voices that helped to bring that kind of justice. But as you might expect, when she spoke up, other people were threatened and they didn't like it. And so they would spin a narrative about her. And even to this day, if you read about Ida Tarbell, you will get a different evaluation uh, about her based upon what kind of politics the person writing has. Because, as you might expect, there is a certain uh, way of leaning into the world that wants to avoid any consequences for those who are the big owners of business because, they, you know, we have a political philosophy, an economic philosophy that thinks that's really good to encourage business, right? And on the other side, there's people who think we need to stick it to the man and we need to, you know, uh, be on the side of the people, right? And the little guy. And so you'll, you'll get different accountings of her life based upon where the people are coming from. People will tear her down. People will build her up. Jesus' day wasn't very different from our own. 
In his day, he was taking it to power, and actually in the most immediate context, taking it to spiritual power. He casts out a demon in verse 22. Very brief accounting that a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. But what this passage is really about is about the responses to Jesus, the responses to his power. Because his power was unquestionable. He had been doing amazing things. Not only was he casting out demons, he was causing the blind to see. He caused a little girl to rise. And these rumors are going out about him. So the crowd's wondering, can this be the son of David? Could this be our hope? The son of David would be a title for the great king, the Messiah, who would come and establish God's reign in the world. They were longing and hoping for this one. And when the Pharisees hear the people wondering in this way, well, they're threatened. Because people are going to go and follow after Jesus and not after them. And so they make up a bold-faced lie. They question not his power, but where, where the source of that power is. They say, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So they, they sow this, this yarn. They, they, they spread this narrative about Jesus, that he's in league with the devil. For the record, as a quick aside, for some of us uh, who have been trained and, and raised in the secular academy, uh, we, we're, we're modernists, right? We're, we know that there are no demons and demon possessions, right? Because we're modern people. Well, actually, uh, if, if you study in the academy, even secular academy in, in anthropology departments, people still document to this day demon possessions around the world. And they, they have language for this. They call it spiritual possession behavior. When people become different than they were before, speaking in voices that are not their own, with power that could not be their own, utterly changing. They call this spiritual possession behavior. You can do your Googling and learn. Even from a secular view, there's something we don't know how to describe. So the scriptures are just reflective of something that's been true since the beginning, that there's an opposition between God and between those who have fallen away from him, first the devil and his fallen angels. The scriptures can account for this, for that spiritual possession behavior. They can make sense of that world. And Jesus is one who is making a man whole, freeing him from the haunting of his mind, freeing, freeing him from being separated from community, freeing him to come back in to the people of God and worship and be free and work and live. He's doing a good thing, but the Pharisees will call it evil. They're calling a good thing, a God thing, evil. <laughs> Willfully opposing God's purposes. And, and, and the, the thing about this, folks, is that the Pharisees are not unique in their day. Still today, if Jesus and his ways and his words of his kingdom were to oppose us in our comfort, our power, our privilege, the things we might hold dear, we might feel threatened. And we too might feel that we should at least cast Jesus in a different light that agrees with us, if not actively oppose him. This is still done to this day. Now, the Pharisees knew better. They carelessly would assassinate other people's character. 
But there were folks all around who didn't know any better. They're just the people. They're just hearing all these messages. In, in fact, Jesus, interestingly, in verse 32, he speaks of himself as the son of man. He says, whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven. We'll speak about that in a moment. But it was forgivable for someone to speak against him because he was still being very cryptic about his identity at this point. He, he would speak of himself in the third person as the son of man. And the people would wonder, who is this son of man? Is it, is it like the Psalm 8 son of man? Is it the Daniel 7 son of man? Is it the Ezekiel son of man? Who is he talking about? It'll become abundantly clear as we go through this passage that Jesus is claiming absolute divine authority. But it was unclear to many of these people. They didn't know. And despite the fact that they didn't know, they would act as though they were certain and this is Palm Sunday, remember? So this is the, the week before Jesus rose again from the grave. And in between there, that crowd that shouted, Hosanna, Lord, save us, we pray, would then be shouting, crucify him. And Pilate, standing up before them, he's the Roman governor who had the authority to hand over Jesus to be crucified. He says, he, he's innocent. He, I, I don't see any cause for this. And he washes his hands of the whole thing. And the crowd says, his blood be on our heads and on our children. Matthew 27, verses 25 and 26. And then they release Barabbas. Why? Why Barabbas? Because Barabbas aligns with the story that they want to live in. A story where, where they revolt against Roman power. He was an insurrectionist. And they choose Barabbas. He was their guy. Or at least they thought, because that's what was told to them. Folks, we can hear things, but the question today is who is Jesus truly and who do you say that he is? Jesus matters today because he is standing before you and he's telling you, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. I'm the dividing line, Jesus says. There are those who find refuge in me and there are those who perish apart from me. There's no other choice. He matters today, folks. He calls us to abandon every lesser allegiance and to follow him. So uh, we're going to pray uh, that the Lord would give us grace to walk through this passage, and then we'll, then we'll walk through it. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that you offer us this, uh, this clarity that Jesus is Lord. He is no mere prophet, no mere teacher, not just a nice guy. He is Lord of heaven and earth calling us after him, calling us to know true refuge, true meaning and goodness. Lord, I pray that you would lead us to see him truly, that you would break down defenses today. Lord, that you'd help the word to hit us in our hearts where we need to hear it. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus is the dividing line. He's already said this to his disciples, mind you. In Matthew 10, 34 to 39, Jesus said things like, if, if you love father or daughter or mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you don't take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. Jesus has already drawn a line in the sand. And he's saying, what will you do? Will you follow me? Who do you think I am? Well, Jesus clears away any misconception about who he says that he is in this passage. 
just working backwards from Matthew 12 back to 11. He, he says in verse 42 that something greater than Solomon is here. Solomon was the great wise king we read about in 1 Kings at the height of the history of Israel, wiser than any, any other that came before him or since. And Jesus is saying there's a greater wisdom, something greater than Solomon is here. Right before that, in verse 41, something greater than Jonah is here. Not, not even a mere prophet, not just somebody who knows God's word and will and can speak it to us today. Something even greater than that is here. Something greater than the temple in verse 6. We've already heard this. Something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than your religious institutions. Something greater than your nationalistic hope is here before you, Jesus is saying. And right before that, Jesus was praying, saying, I thank you, Father that you've hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to little children. Yes, for that such was your gracious will. All things have been given to me by my Father. All things. There's nothing, not one square inch in all of existence over which Jesus, who is sovereign, doesn't say, mine, it's all his, every bit. That's who he says he is. He has authority to say what he says, to do what he does. But the, the problem with this in, in our world, in this post-Genesis 3 broken world of injustice, of powerful and less powerful, Jesus won't answer to any lesser authority. In fact, he'll be causing some trouble, and I'd say it's good trouble, starting in verse 24. When the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? The Pharisees hear it. They say Jesus is in line with Beelzebul, but Jesus knew their thoughts. Verse 25, and he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. He's exposing the, the fault in their logic. It just doesn't make sense. Why would Satan cast out Satan? Just think about it, guys. What you're saying doesn't make sense. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself, and how will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then by whom do your sons cast them out? And you see what Jesus did. He turns the tables back on them because accusations without evidence, we can all play that game all day long. Your sons cast out demons. In the first century, there's uh, uh, evidence of, of folks who cast out demons, uh, whether magicians like uh, Simon Barjona, we meet in Acts, and, and, and there's documents from the first century that you can read uh, where folks sought to cast out demons in the Jewish community. So that was known. By whom do your sons cast them out, Jesus says, poignantly. Therefore, they will be your judges. So he exposes the folly of what they're saying. You don't, you don't even know what you're talking about, making your ac accusations without evidence. And he'll speak in a little bit about their careless words. And we might just pause for a moment and think about the careless words of accusation in our culture that we might be tempted to participate in. And that way of being that was present in the first century that led to these people crucifying the Lord and Savior of the world. But secondly, he judges their hypocrisy. So he exposes their folly and then he, he judges their hypocrisy. He said in verse 30, whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. You see, the Pharisees, they were playing a game. They're playing a game where they're, they're trying to press the people to follow them. And it's like, if you don't 
tell their narrative the way they say it, well, then you're not with us. You not only have to disregard what Jesus says, you actually have to say that he is in league with Satan. And people are like, oh, okay. You seem really nice. Nope, nope, he's not. You have to say what we say. Because if you don't say what we say, then you're not with us. And if you're not with us, then you can't come and worship with us. And then you're on the outside. And God is against you. Because he's with us. And these are the people who would place burdens on people's shoulders and wouldn't give them any help. And Jesus is helping, (laughs) you see. So you can imagine the inner turmoil of the people around the Pharisees. And Jesus is turning it around. What we should care about is not whether or not you're with the religious crowd. (laughs) What matters is whether you're with me. Don't fear man in whose nostrils is breath. Don't fear the one who can kill your body. But fear the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. Whoever's not with me is against me. And he goes on, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. He judges their hypocrisy. You see, they are bold-faced lying to these people, saying that Jesus casting out a demon is a work of the devil. And Jesus is saying, this is blasphemy against the spirit. You're blaspheming against the work of God in the world, calling what God does the work of the devil. That's wicked. And it's unforgivable because these people were holding back, these religious leaders holding back their people that they were responsible for from knowing the savior of the world who had come to seek and to save them. They're trying to like throw smoke in their eyes so they can't see what's before them. It's unforgivable. And interestingly, again, you could speak a word against the Son of Man and be forgiven, against Jesus himself. He could take that. He understands. He had obscured his identity to this point. He wasn't flaunting it from the mountains. He was one who is like the servant in in Isaiah 42. He won't quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He wasn't so public yet. He was content to help the lowly and the demon-possessed. And Jesus would say to those who even were crucifying him, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. (laughs) They didn't even know what they were doing. They thought he was in line with demons. They didn't realize that he was there to save them. But the Pharisees knew better. And so their sin was unforgivable. I, I hope to unburden the tender conscience here who has heard before Uh, that they need to fear or beware lest they commit the unforgivable sin. Maybe you've heard about this. If you've never been to church before, you haven't heard of this. It sounds eerie, but if you've been in church, you've probably heard of this at some point. The unforgivable sin, what is that? And, And at times, you might even have a list of unforgivable sins as though there's things that are not forgivable and don't commit these because then you won't be forgiven and you're going to hell. And at times, those unforgivable sins will happen to just line up with whatever cultural sins we're fighting about in culture wars at that particular time. It's nonsense. 
the unforgivable sin Jesus speaks about was what the Pharisees did in his day, opposing him actively, calling his work the work of the devil, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It won't be forgiven in this age or the age to come. Jesus judges their hypocrisy. And he warns them, and I think today for us, we could take warning. He warns their flippant accusations. These are people who are supposed to be truth tellers, lovers of truth, lovers of the word of God, which says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Verse 34, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. In context, he's speaking about the careless words that were dismissing him. Not only dismissing him, but labeling him as a devil, (laughs) turned against him. What he seems to be saying, if you read in the next verse, by your words, you'll be justified. By your words, you'll be condemned. The dividing line is, what do you confess about me, Jesus says? Who do you say that I am? What do you confess to be true of me? Do you peddle this narrative? Are you willing to see through that to me, to see who I am? If you confess me as Lord, you'll be justified. If not, you'll be condemned. Jesus exposes their folly. He judges their hypocrisy. He's going to warn against their empty facade. He speaks about this generation. In the first century, he comes to this particular generation of people. And he comes in their midst. He's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. He's doing wondrous works. He's, He's encroaching into the devil's territory. The kingdom of God is triumphing. But when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, verse 43. It passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. So imagine a generation. Jesus has come in their midst. He's cast out demons. The devil and his kingdom are in retreat. But then the spirit says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. So you can imagine after Jesus has, has risen, has ascended, He's left a people that he has just done ministry in the midst. He's brought his kingdom in the midst of them. But how did they respond to him? Did they take hold of him? Or were they left just sort of looking religiously nice on the outside, but empty in the middle and on the inside? Because then it goes and brings with it, verse 45, seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. And so it will be with this evil generation. In this, in this odd parable that Jesus is telling, it seems to be saying, Jesus is saying that if you fail to respond to me, the devil will have his way with you and the last state of you will be worse than the first. You have a facade. You're, you're swept, you're, you're clean, you're put in order, but inside, there's nothing. And the devil will take advantage of that. Advantage. So he warns against the empty facade of the lesser authorities of his day. He even resists conformity to family expectations. He, he won't answer to any lesser authority, even the family system. Even, you know, his mother Mary, <coughs> his true mother, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, the Gospels tell us. 
And he had brothers that were born of Mary and Joseph after him. And these, this, his mother and brothers come to him. They're standing outside and, and they want to speak to him. And Mark, we find that they actually, they're trying to bring him home. They think he's gone crazy because he's opposing all of the leaders of the day. He's causing controversy. People are opposed to him. This isn't what it's supposed to be like. You're supposed to just come in power and authority and establish the kingdom of God. But this looks crazy, Jesus. You're going to get yourself killed. Come home. But Jesus replies to the man who told him, who's my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretches out his hand toward his disciples. <laughs> he says, these, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. How you respond to Jesus, this is the most essential question in life. This is what he's raising before us. His true family is not, is not about blood, but it's about relationship to him. Do you do the will of my Father in heaven? Are you aligned with, with me? And this inevitably will threaten every lesser allegiance, right? Think about this. If Jesus is the dividing line, if he claims all authority in heaven and on earth and he won't answer to any lesser authorities, he's gonna threaten every lesser authority. And so this is something I've, I've, had to, I've brought it up through other texts and other moments and it's something we need to hear relatively frequently living in the 21st century is that Jesus threatens our allegiances First and foremost, he, he threatens the allegiance to, to party power, to party narratives, to parties for whom it's inconvenient that Jesus is exactly who he is and not a twisted, slightly tweaked version of himself that's very convenient for them. Jesus is who he is, and he threatens allegiance to party. He threatens allegiance to, to church affiliation and denomination if, if we start to oppose what God is doing in the world just to support our own power, to get more people in the door and butts in the seat and money in the basket, but not to serve the Lord in his kingdom. He will threaten <laughs> that earthly allegiance. He'll threaten our allegiance to human expectations, our allegiance to human family, when that is holding us back from following him. These can all be good things. Don't hear what Jesus and I are not saying. It's good to be a part of institutions that seek the common good. It's good to be a part of a church family that worships the Lord and seeks his mission in the world. It's good to be a part of a family, God-created family, right? It's so good, but when those things, when those groups demand your allegiance in a way that would keep you from following the Lord, Jesus has drawn a line in the sand and he says, those who are not for me are against me. Those who are not with me will be scattered. Are you with me or are you against me? Jesus says, there is no other path. And so it's time to decide. And, and I could understand that uh, many people, uh, upon hearing Jesus make these claims of authority, they would want proof. Give me some proof that you have the right to say these things, that I should follow you in this way. And then Jesus says, 
when some of the scribes and Pharisees asked him for proof. They said, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you in verse 38. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. They didn't really want a sign. Nothing would have proven anything to them. They'd already seen so much. But he says, no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three, three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And we're about to celebrate that sign coming to fruition next Sunday on Easter. Jesus, who was crucified, died and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again from the grave. And we celebrate the confirmation that Jesus has authority, all authority in heaven and on earth. He's a good king who came to seek and to save us. We can celebrate that together, the hope of resurrection life in him. But there are folks who nevertheless today will be somewhat threatened by the actual Jesus of the scriptures. And today we have to decide where we stand. Will we stand on, on one side, in one party group, in one family system? Or will we take a risk and root ourselves in him, come what may? In John 8, there's a story of a woman that's held dear by the church uh, from early days, a woman who was caught in adultery. And when she was caught in her culture, that meant that she was going to be stoned to death. She was going to be uh, executed by the community. And so the religious leaders were gathering around with stones in their hand, preparing to execute this woman for committing a, a grievous sin that was damaging to herself, to her family, and to her community looking on. They're preparing to do that, but Jesus comes and he stands in between this woman and the people who are about to throw the stones. And he eventually says, let the one who is out sin cast the first stone. And everyone drops their stones and starts leaving. And the woman there, he goes to her and he says, see, who, who is left to condemn you? But go and sin no more. The Lord wouldn't condemn her, but calls her to sin no more. And I think about this today. There are some who would like us and would expect us, if we would be in their group, if we would be as Christian and as conservative as they are, that we need to pick up the stones and be as mean as we can against everybody that goes against God and his design for marriage, for, you know, who sins in any cultural way in our sexuality as this woman was. If you don't have a stone in your hand ready to throw it, you're not one of us. And Jesus just isn't in their group, doesn't care to be. At the same time, there are those who are ready to throw stones at you. <laughs> if you would not affirm everything about them and everything they do all the time, Jesus says, go and sin no more. What you did was a sin. <laughs> I don't condemn you, but go, sin no more. He doesn't align. He's not afraid of either side. And he invites us to come and know him. To know true forgiveness. To know true justice. To know true righteousness. To know true purpose. Come to me. He is the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one else is the arbiter of these things. Come to him. Why does Jesus matter today? It's because he is the dividing line. He is the ultimate choice that we make. Are you with him or not? And if you're with him, you will find blessing. Psalm 2 speaks of the nations that rage, the peoples that plot in vain, the kings that set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. But the Lord laughs from the heavens because he has set his son on Zion, his anointed on his holy hill. And the end of that psalm says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. One of the things that is, is fearful when we come to this point of decision about Jesus, if we would take a step and trust him and follow him, is what will it be like? What kind of a Lord is he? We've experienced religious leaders with the stones. We've experienced people on the other end with the stones. <laughs> what is Jesus like? We've experienced the, the, the disintegration of family as we abandon the wisdom of the ages. But Jesus, something greater than Solomon, is here for us, a greater king than David. And when we take refuge in him, something happens in us, and it's that he shapes us to become more like him. And this is one of the proofs, the proofs that we're called to offer to our neighbors when they want proof that they should follow Jesus. And I challenge you with this today as I'm closing. What what does your allegiance do to you? Does it produce ugliness in you? Does it produce family uh, chaos? As you choose to do whatever you would do, regardless of what God would say? Does it produce wholeness, goodness, commitment to truth and justice? These are signs of his kingdom. Blessed are all who take refuge in Jesus. He's the dividing line. And if you see those fruits of those other things, those other mentors, those other leaders, those other groups that you subscribe to, I call you to lay down that lesser allegiance and to take fuller grasp of your Savior and him alone. He's the dividing line and he's calling you to himself today. Father, please give us mercy to come to Jesus today from wherever we are with our doubts, with our, with our anger, with our fear. Lord, we, we, we just, we turn from these things and we turn to Jesus now. I pray that you would prove him lovely and true to us again. We praise his name, amen.